You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest went to the Supreme Court to determine the fate of his band's name. Unable to argue, testify or even be near his own attorney during the process. Simon Tam from Portland or Oregon named his all-Asian American band The Slants. Most know the word is used as a racial slur for Asians, but Simon wanted to put a new spin on the word. After a long eight years in court, his story has been told in Rolling Stone and they finally got the result they wanted. Let's chat to Simon to hear more about his story. How are you, Simon? Welcome to the show. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Simon, how did your band originally form? Well, uh, it started out as an idea. I I saw this kind of vacuum, this lack of Asian Americans in the music industry. And I thought, how cool would it be to have a band that actually celebrated the culture? The problem is that um, when I moved to Portland, Oregon in the early 2000s, I didn't know anyone. There were very few Asian Americans to be found. So I mostly relied on sites like myspace.com and used classified ads to try and bring people together. But once we did, we were able to finally launch, uh, though it took me about two years before I could recruit a lineup to, to actually begin performing the songs. Yeah, because I, I did a little bit of singing back in the day, and I remember how hard it was to even get a band to get, let alone an all-Asian band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you also just want to make sure there's alignment and musical taste exactly, and talent. Exactly, yeah. You know? And yeah, definitely talent. <laughs> now, um, when it came to the name, how did that come about? Well, the name actually came to me before I even had a band. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, about this idea of wanting an all-Asian band. And I was like, what's something you think all-Asian people have in common? And they said, slanted eyes. So I thought, yeah, that's interesting because, first of all, it's not true. Like, not all Asian people have slanted eyes. And we're not the only people on earth with any kind of slant to our eyes. But but then I kind of recalled those experiences. Like, you know, I was violently attacked a few times as a kid. I was bullied. And it was because I had this particular eye shape. Mm. And I also knew... You know, Asians are the most bullied demographic in American schools. I knew I wasn't alone in this experience. And I always associated slanted eyes with with shame, embarrassment, and and kind of fear. So I thought, how cool would it be if we could flip the association to something positive? Mm -hmm. If we could turn the stereotype upside down and actually address those issues. So that's when the idea for the slants was born. Plus, you know, it just sounds like a cool band. It sounds like a new wave band. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) <laughs> I really love it. It's funny you, you speak about that because I've got other friends of mine that um, are dark skinned. Um, and I think that what a lot of people don't understand, I mean, me, even as a gay man, I got bullied, but the difference between us, myself and and you guys is that mine isn't always physically known. Like unless you, you've got very feminine traits or are acting out or whatever, we can normally walk down the street and get away with it where you know, it's completely different for someone that where the appearance is what people are having the issue with. Yeah. Like we, we can't hide behind it. All right. Exactly. Other aspects of our identity. It's, it's yeah. just kind of there. Yeah. And, and that's one of the difficulties. And, but I think it's also one of the opportunities as well, like to, yeah. to address those stereotypes and say like, look, you know, we come in many different uh, ethnic backgrounds. I mean, even just amongst Asian people, that's you're talking about over a hundred different, completely different yeah. 
ethnic identities, histories, languages, and culture. And this is an opportunity to say, like, we're not all the same. Like, you know, we know it's kind of a race, like race is kind of a social construct anyway. Mm. And this is a way to help highlight that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with all my Asian friends, it's it's amazing to actually get to know about their their backgrounds because so many parts of it is so fascinating. And if people only sat down to actually learn that themselves, they would really tr- truly find something that's really fascinating about the planet and about people. But you've just got to get to know the people to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So when did the trouble start about the whole name issue? Well, the trouble began when I just wanted to have a very routine thing, which is to get a registered trademark for our band name. Like, Mm. you know, musicians got to do this all the time. We got to protect our intellectual property rights. And we never actually had any issues with the name until we applied for the trademark. And that's when the government came back and said, hey, your name could be disparaging to persons of Asian descent. I'm like, we're of Asian descent. What What are you talking about? And it turns out there was this law that had been on the books uh, since the 1930s that basically says you can't register trademarks that might be considered scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. But the decisions made uh, by by the people, like in terms of who gets uh, the law gets applied to, that's where it became very evident that we had some problems, mm. right? So the, the the law it's supposed to like for prevent uh, the marketplace from having a bunch of crude language and that kind of thing. But the legislators who made those decisions oftentimes came from very dominant cultures Mm. and therefore didn't have the same experiences as the people kind of below. And so what we found out over the years is that, you know, in theory, you don't want a bunch of offensive stuff out there. Like I agree with that, but when it came to the decision-making process, the benefit of the doubt was extended to people like those making those decisions. Mm. And so uh, we, we did a number of studies and we looked at other people who kind of studied this a lot longer than I had. And it turns out the law was almost exclusively enforced against people of color and members of the LGBTQ community. Cause you know, mm. the, we tend to be the people that say, Hey, we want to take this thing that stings and turn it around. We want to empower yeah. ourselves and, and, and take authority, but the, we aren't the people that get the benefit of the doubt. So that's why every single racial slur that you could think of uh, had been a registered trademark, except when it came to the members of that community. Wow. And same thing with many other phrases that, you know, from the gay and lesbian community, uh, for, for women, like those, the groups that kind of say, like, we want to take power for ourselves and flip the script, change the meaning. Well, whenever our groups decided to do that, the government's like, hey, you can't do that. That's way too scandalous. Mm. So that's why we we decided to continue fighting, even though it was just kind of draining. I mean, I when you talk about the, exo- the experience of, I mean, it's, it's really expensive, uh, but it's also just emotionally and mentally draining to be yeah. locked in a struggle for so long. No, definitely. I know that I'm, because I did read the Rolling Stone article and I, I recall... Um, one of the arguments was that you've got a team over there called the Redskins and how that could be taken offensively. So, yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, the law at all. Yeah, and there's also, like, I think somewhere in the realm of, like, thousands and thousands of trademark registrations from pornographic companies. And they, um, 
let's just say they could be very creative with their uses of language and it could be very colorful and sometimes it's with humor mm. and, <laughs> and sometimes it, you know it very well could offend someone yeah and so it, it's just showing how there's almost kind of um some hypocrisy in this like if you're really trying to use this to like sanitize the market then actually do it but if you're only going to pick and choose winners and losers how come all of the losers come from already you know communities already marginalized by the government that's not mm. right mm. and so we wanted to help level the playing field and say you know what ultimately it should be the communities affected that decide it should be the marketplace not some government official that has no idea what what it's like to be in this skin yeah yeah so tell us about the court case itself because it, it lasted a long time yeah so i i mean well the government's not known for being um efficient or expedient when it comes to certain things yeah. and i learned that very very personally through the process uh, it took us about six years before we even got to a federal court and once we were at a federal court we actually did win we had a federal court that um, struck the law down as unconstitutional and you know normally it would kind of be over there but the government doesn't take the cancellation of its laws uh, lightly. Mm. So they actually followed suit and took me to the Supreme Court wow. where we had to, you know, fight in the highest court in the land. And there we actually, we did win unanimously, but that's what dragged it on for nearly a decade. Incredible. It's just a lot of bureaucracy in terms of going back and forth. And, and it's what's, what's kind of ironic is that, you know, this whole time and the entire span, they had never consulted a single Asian American or single Asian American organization. They were very paternalistic in that manner, thinking like they knew better than us, even though we had survey data, even though we had national organizations on board supporting our case, we had uh, scholarly research and academics, all of that wasn't considered good enough for their tastes. And so, you know, we had to kind of expand the argument to kind of a bigger constitutional argument, which is that they were actually violating my freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And I know that you used a no win, no fee lawyer, which is probably a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they, they're very, very generous in, in doing that. Yeah. Uh, the first couple of years, about first 18 months or so, I, I, I paid out of pocket. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, some very, uh, gracious lawyers kind of saw the bigger picture and decided mm. to take our case on. We still had to pay the hard fees. Like there's, oh my goodness, there's so many court fees and and, I know, yeah. and things involved that like people don't even think of. Like I had to, I think I spent over $15,000 just on copies and staples really? because the court only approved certain printers to be used. Really? And I mean, I almost went bankrupt over this process it just from those fees, if I had to pay legal fees on top of that, it, it probably would have cost an excess of a million dollars. Yeah. And so thankfully, <laughs> so grateful that people were uh, helped me out in that process. There's, there's two points that I really do feel that the government like to put in those, those laws, like you were just saying that a certain printer needs to be used just so they know that some people are not going to be able to make it happen. Another thing is how amazing those lawyers are because I've been through a pro that process myself many years ago um, and with a no f win, no feed lawyer. And it, you've really got to give them kudos because it is, it's, it's about them seeing the bigger picture because they're not going to take that on unless they think that they can win, of course. 
Um, so it's, you know, it's obvious that they've sat down, they've done their research and really looked at the case so they know that they can take it on with confidence. Absolutely. And I mean, the system's designed to, you know, it's, it's difficult for a reason. And I, and I get that they don't want to see all these laws overturned all the time, but to kind of give you an example is like, I wasn't the first person that go up against this law. Many other folks had, mm. and some of them went pretty far. Uh, for example, there's this amazing lesbian motorcycle club out of San Francisco, California called Dykes on Bikes. And yeah, they we, were funny enough. We've actually got them in Australia too. They start the Mardi Gras oh, yeah, yeah. each year. Yeah. The, amazing group. So they, you know, they went pretty far up, but they, um, you know, they eventually gave up because they didn't want to risk losing further rights. Uh, but they were denied because the government's like, Oh, you can't use the word dyke. That's offensive to lesbian people. And they're like, we are the lesbian community. What are you talking about? And, uh, another group called Heap media, which is a Jewish publication. Uh, again, it was by that community for the community, but the government just kind of stepped in and was like, you can't do that. And it's just really incredible. Like they were the folks that helped lay down a lot of that, you know, the initial road work. Mm. And, and so I, I think that, you know, I, I credit a lot of that work to them. And, mm. and thankfully, like when we won it, Dykes and Bikes was actually in litigation for their logo. And, you know, we've helped put an end to almost 16 years of, legal battles for them. Wow, that's incredible. So why do you feel the hesitation was there for the government? Do you think it was really about the name or do you think it was a little bit deeper? Well, when we talked to their attorneys, they they said that it was kind of a like bigger. They were afraid of political fallout uh, that people would be upset that if they, you know, granted us this registration and they didn't want to hear uh people who are unhappy with that decision made. And so they're just really trying to avoid political controversy, thinking that we would just give up just like everyone else had given up. I mean, you know, there's many, many cases that came before me, as I mentioned, Mm. and they all just kind of like, this isn't worth it. This battle is too great. It's too expensive. And so they thought like, who are these little upstarts, this little band out of Portland? That's not going to happen. They didn't know that I could be extremely stubborn. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, good on you for doing it. I think it's absolutely amazing. I really do. If you like your beauty products to stand out, look a little different, and smell amazing, then I'm pretty sure you should check out Sugar Monster. Brand new and completely Adelaide based, Sugar Monster scrubs are natural body products with a quirky style to them. You'll have to see to know why. All completely handmade, vegan, and cruelty free with skin loving ingredients that your body will love. Plus, they smell good enough to eat. But don't actually do that. Check out the range at sugarmonster.com.au and support local business. Do you find the music industry as racist as it seems the courts were? I I think that um, what's, what's interesting is that most forms of racism aren't necessarily overt. Mm. It's not like they're saying, hey, you're all Asian forget about you. They use other means of exercising that control yeah. by saying we're not marketable or that there isn't an audience for that. I personally have experienced a lot of pretty, you know, in my opinion, blatantly racist experiences. Like, you know, pretty early on in our career, we were offered a multi-million dollar recording contract, but it was on the premise that we replace our Asian lead singer with someone who was white because they said Asian doesn't sell. 
And in their minds, they're like, we're doing you a favor. You know, we're, yeah. we're giving you lots of money. We're going to give you all the things that you need to make your dreams come true. All we're asking is that you make yourself more marketable. In my mind, it's incredibly insulting to do that. And so, you know, I think it's getting better. People are talking about issues of race more often and more openly, particularly in the last year or so. But I think we still have a long way to go. I, th I think there's still a lot of unconscious bias that people have simply because they don't have the shared experiences that we do. Yeah. And obviously they've never heard of K-pop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the, another thing I find really baffling about that too is they're saying that it's not sellable, but they don't realize how big the Asian population is and the potential of the money and fame just from that. So really, if they were to actually invest that same money into different places and countries, of course it would be successful. It's just, it's actually more about their work than yours. I think by nature, systems like to uphold themselves. Yeah. Like, and they're used to the tradition. I mean, if you think about it, we saw record sales from the traditional major labels started falling in the 90s and the 2000s mm. because of the rise of MP3s and file sharing. Now, when you think about it, all the record labels could have gotten together and say, let's solve this problem by developing um, perhaps an e-commerce platform or mm. a subscription model where people could stream. But they didn't do that. It, were, it was tech companies that you know, launched iTunes or yeah. Spotify or Pandora. And same thing goes for the book industry when we got PDF files. It wasn't book publishers that solved the issue of like declining sales in books. They didn't invent the Kindle. It was an online marketplace. Amazon created the Kindle. And so oftentimes industries that have the power to do something to save themselves essentially don't because they're too busy holding on to that smaller picture thing. Yeah, and, so true. And it takes innovators and people who are willing to say, you know what, I want to step outside of this box and recreate this, reimagine a system where independent creators can benefit. And those folks actually help change the culture. Mm. So apart from your stubbornness, why was it so important to win? Well, I, you know, when I saw how the law was being used, I just knew I couldn't walk away. I, like, I think that um, we had a happy ending, like we won. Yeah. But most people don't realize that it was almost a decade, almost a quarter of my life was stuck in this extremely degrading process. I mean, it, it, it is degrading in that fact that I had to sit there and constantly prove over and over again that I wasn't racist towards myself, my own community, it, that our community somehow needed someone outside of it to make its decisions for us. That's mm. incredibly degrading. And so I didn't want anyone else to have to go through that experience again. And I also want to use my case as a way to shine a light on laws that we have in general. Like people may assume, even people with the best of intentions assume that they know what's best, but oftentimes you know, it's the people at the center of these laws who are most affected by them that mm. ought to be making the decisions. It's funny you mentioned like um, you're out in Australia and I was, I was actually sharing my story at a law conference in Sydney. And one of the, um, one of the folks that worked for the government said like, wow, your story is so incredible. You know, if, if you actually, you, you know, and they, 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 
certainly identified with my cause and they said, you know, I bet if you tried to apply for a trademark here in Australia, you wouldn't have this issue because we have a lot of Asian people here. We get it. And I was like, it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually did try for a trademark in Australia and I was rejected by Australia's version of that same law. Wow. And, and the guy was just floored. He's like, Oh, I, I just assumed that we would know best. And I was like, no, it was the same application. We provided the same evidence, how we're supported by our community. And you outright rejected it because he assumed you knew better. Mm. And, and he was just like, he couldn't quite fathom it. And I was like, it just goes to show that, you know, we can think we know better, but oftentimes, you know, we, we have certain blinders. We're just not aware of others' experiences. Yeah. Just quietly. I do really believe this um, being an Australian myself Australians like to think they're not as racist as we actually are. The country, <laughs> the country is quite racist. I mean, I, I can ask several of my friends from different backgrounds and they will all attest to that. It, it's nice to have that warm, fuzzy feeling and think that it's not. But if you were to really look at the, the country, especially if you go on Facebook and you look at, I mean, even just recently we had the Australian Day celebrations and um, with the Aboriginals here, they call it Invasion Day because it's where a lot of them were murdered and killed when the settlers first came. So they're wanting to change that date so it doesn't actually happen on that day. Well, because of the posts on Facebook or from the news sources, the comments underneath were just disgusting. And it's, sure. and it's sort of like, really, if you're, if you're going to deny racism, just read those comments and, and see how, how blatant it is out there. Because it is there. <laughs> You've just got to look. Yeah, I think it just shows how we're all susceptible to, to racism yeah, or definitely. to ignorance. And oftentimes, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying like I'm perfect or any community, even communities of color are mm. subject to this kind of thing too, because that's the power of like racist structures, things that are yeah. invisible because some people benefit and others don't. And oftentimes if we're, if we feel like we're losing power, you know, oftentimes people will lash out however they will. Yeah. And it's, it's just one of those unfortunate things about it and why it's so important to be constantly uh, be aware of, our own kind of own bias and to mm. check ourselves. I've always been a firm believer in there's a dickhead in every race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and every gender, every class, every, That's every it. exactly. You can slice it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now going back to that label experience, what ended up happening? Did they just reject the offer altogether and just say, well, if you're not going to do it, that's it. Well, we, we actually met in person and, um, they, they, they handed me the contract and I, the conflict was just absolutely, <laughs> I just inside, I was, a, I was actually in deep financial need at the time. And, and I think they knew that. Mm. And they're just the, the power of their swing. They were trying to guilt me into signing this thing. Like, Hey, if you sign this thing, your parents could retire today. Like, everyone in your band would be taken care of. Even if we replace the lead singer, you could pay him out and he'll be taken care of. And I mean, it was tough, but then I, I thought like the whole point of me starting this band was for representation to fight for these ideas. How could I betray that? And so I, I actually took the contract, I ripped it up and I was like, no, this is racist. And, Good on you. and you know, and, and it was funny cause they were like, we're doing, they kept presenting it as we're doing you a favor. Like, mm. you know, Rolling Stone is never going to cover you. Pitchfork is never going to cover you. You never will be on billboard. That's just the industry right now. But 
you know, they thought they could honestly put me there if, if, if I had their help. Mm. And I, and I was just like, no, that's, that's racist. And I was like, you're going to regret it one day. And what's funny is like you fast forward like eight years later and I was in every one of those publications yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, Oh man, I wish I still had the guy's number. <laughs> I know just fax him a copy. <laughs> yeah. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I heard this phrase kind of, it, it gets tossed around a lot. It, it's that the best form of revenge is living well. Yeah. And, so true. And espe- especially to the point where you're not harboring resentment anymore. You're just living and feeling fulfilled. Yeah. And I just was like, what matters for me is not to like prove those people wrong, but to make the way a little bit easier for those coming behind me. Mm. And if I could do that, if I could create art and change culture, then, then, you know, I'm, I'm in good shape. I'm happy yeah, about that. That's brilliant. So tell us more about the band. Well, uh, you know, our band actually retired from live touring uh, in to- late 2019. We, we played our final wow. uh, show as a full band uh, in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, I, I guess it was kind of very, yeah, a mixed blessing and a curse at the same time. But like we, we decided to step down uh, right before the whole world shut down yeah. and kind of essentially ended live music for, for the most part. And, and so it ended up being okay. We're still writing and recording, but we also decided to focus our time, money, and energy into a new nonprofit that we had started because we wanted to help empower other Asian American artists find their artistic voice. And so now we kind of provide money and mentorship and all kinds of other programs to help um, artists be able to create a sustainable career, whether it's fellow musicians, filmmakers, authors, or otherwise. And it's been incredibly rewarding, especially throughout COVID, because we've mm-hmm. been able to, you know, create all these great programs and essentially be for other artists what we wish we had when we were starting out. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, also, you've done a memoir titled Slanted, How an Asian American Troublemaker Took on the Supreme Court. Tell us more about that. Sure. So I published this memoir in, um, in 2019. And it kind of captures the story of like what it was like to go up to the Supreme court, but at the same time also like try and hold a career as a touring musician at the same time, which mm. is a, uh, it's okay. a strange balance. Yeah. <laughs> and so, cause a lot of times you hear about these big court battles, these things that help do some major changes and, 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 you know, change our society for the better. Like in the U S a very big case that, that paved the way for same sex marriage or things Mm. that um, allowed other people to, to, to be able to vote. Like we hear about these big cases, but you don't hear about like what the, you know, human costs on that is for the people involved. And so I wanted to share some of those stories behind the scenes. Um, you know, I, so I talk about some of those other cases, but also kind of give that real inside, uh, like pull back the curtain of what it was like mm. to go through the process and also kind of like what led me to that point, like why those experiences of bowling had affected me so much and how that actually informed my work as a musician. Mm. And so the book is kind of uh, part one part uh, art and music, and the other part is has to do with law and how we create change in a society. It's brilliant. I love it. So tell us, where can people find out more about you? Uh, my website is simontam.org, and so I write articles that are on a 
pretty frequent basis. I'll have videos of my um, speaking and that sort of thing. Although most of my work these days is at theslants.org, which is our, um, you know, the Slants Foundation, our nonprofit's website. And that's where I'm doing a ton of programs and, and work with other communities. And, and you know, we're doing all kinds of really exciting stuff. So with that, are you just, are you just working with people nationally or internationally? Well, internationally as well. Oh, so we've fantastic. got board members all throughout the U.S. One of our board wow. members is actually in Taipei uh, and are working with artists of Asian descent in Canada, the U.S., Australia. Amazing. Uh, so all over the world. I've got some people that might be interested in that. <laughs> sure. Have them hit us up. I will. I will indeed. Well, thank you, Simon, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming onto the show. I absolutely give you huge kudos for what you've done. I think it's absolutely incredible. You should be very proud. Thank you so much for having me. No worries at all. We'll speak soon. All right. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.